Commonwealth Stories speaks to people from a host of nations, from Africa to Asia, from North America to the Caribbean. You'll hear the stories and thoughts of people from all walks of life, all with one thing in common. They have all found a home in Birmingham. So what does the Commonwealth mean to us now? How has it shaped the Birmingham we know today? And what lasting legacy do we hope the games coming to the city of Birmingham will leave? The Commonwealth Stories podcast is available on all your favourite platforms. To keep up to date with the series and hear the latest episodes, make sure to follow and subscribe. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Dr. Yemasi Akimbabola, Senior Lecturer in Media and Culture at Birmingham City University. She explains how the British Empire stunted the development of Commonwealth countries, making them poorer, unstable and more reliant on the British state. She also touches on the devastating impact centuries of colonialism has had on women's rights in Africa. Understanding the historical context, understanding the deeply rooted cultural context. I think it's more about having the leaders and member states who have the will for change. How does the Commonwealth ignite that will for change? In the second part of this episode, we'll be hearing from some of the amazing people from the Commonwealth who have made Birmingham their home. Settling in a new country is a daunting task. New migrants must quickly adjust to new culture, new language, new people and a new way of life. Shanaz Petkar and Tamika Beckford share their experiences of settling in the second city. It was totally different. The roads were not dirt roads. Uh, There was cars everywhere. It was lovely. Enjoyed it so much. In Jamaica, they would say, you're a fool to what you don't know. And we were fools to what we didn't know. And it was so real when we had the opportunity to, like, work legally and to, like, just be here legally and just to do things like like normal people. This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Life. Historically, many Commonwealth countries have been depicted as underdeveloped nations, thrust into modernity with the coming of the British Empire. Nations like Nigeria and India were seen as derelict lands, inhabited by uncivilised people. But there is a plethora of rich history and culture that existed centuries before the arrival of those first British settlers. Speaking to our reporter, Ida Fafana, at Birmingham City University, Dr Yemasi Akimbabola explains how the British Empire was not the unifying force it claimed to be and actually interrupted the unique, distinctive cultures developing in these nations. Do you want to tell me about your move to Birmingham? Like, what brings you here to the city? I came to Birmingham as an international student in 2005. I'd lived in the UK before, but spent the last four, seven years before I came back to the UK in Nigeria. I'd lived for a lot of that in northern Nigeria, in Medugri, which you're familiar with because that's where Boko Haram started. And it was I'm from this, the western part of Nigeria. So living there was a huge contrast to um, my, the environment I was, I was used to. And obviously... Um, having lived in the UK before as well. I came to Birmingham to do my master's in 2005. And then I stayed on to do my PhD, met my husband, (laughs) got married and kind of never left. 
it's been it's been an interesting um, journey, kind of starting from that mindset of being an international student to actually being a part of the community here in Birmingham and been a part of an institution like BCU that is the, the University for Birmingham and, you know, engaging with students who are locally from Birmingham and West Midlands. So how have you found then as a Nigerian living in Birmingham throughout the years? You've been here since 2005. So how have you found that? When I first moved here, obviously our campus then was in Peribar. Um, so there was there's a lot of cultures there. Like it was very rich in terms of the kind of uh, multi levels of identities um, and cultures that existed there. The multicultural nature of Birmingham really resonates in the makeup of my friendship circles. Right, so I have circles across for whether they're Indian or Kenyan or Caribbean, etc. And it's just I don't think you get that kind of vibrancy in terms of that multiculturalism anywhere else in the UK or as much as you do here in Birmingham. And, you know, not just in Birmingham itself, like in the outskirts, where there's Dudley and all that area. So, yeah, I I can't imagine myself kind of living anywhere else really because of that kind of vibrancy of the different levels of culture. Um, I'm being in the privileged position to be able to educate people from Birmingham and people in this environment and contribute to their to creating, to developing opportunities for themselves to advance themselves and be a part of that story of the development of, of the multiplicity of cultures in Birmingham is really is really an interesting and unique um, position to be in. How do you think the Commonwealth has shaped the Birmingham we know today, having all these multicultural identities, as you said? So the Commonwealth is one of those institutions, bodies that started off with really positive notions of development, democracy, those kind of things. Um, and obviously there's the imperial imperial legacy of that. But I think it's one of those institutions where in principle on paper, if it does what it says it should do, could have greater impact than perhaps other kind of bodies and structures like the EU and, you know, those kind of things. But I think it's, you know, the coming together of all these cultures, all these um, countries, all the societies is the kind of collective energy that we need in, in, in terms of what's happening in society today. And in a way, Birmingham kind of embodies all of that mix of the vibrancy in, in the different cultures and nations that make up the Commonwealth. Whether it's living up to what it could be is another question. What do you think it could live up to be? I wonder whether the average person on the street beyond the Commonwealth Games know what the Commonwealth is. Um, you know what the EU does. You know what NATO does. You know what the you know other bodies, the African Union, for example, does. I know what the Commonwealth is about. I know where it started. I know the histories. I know the relationship it's trying to bridge between the nations that make up the Commonwealth. And I th- like I said, in principle, I think it had he has good ideals, um, but in practice, there's not really it's not really proven its relevance. And I don't think that it's the idea of it is irrelevant. I think actually it's needed, but with the caveat that there needs to be that complete shedding of the imperial past. But then the notions of development and democracy and justice that kind of underscores the value of the Commonwealth is something that is still needed, but the Commonwealth probably needs the significance um, overall in terms of what it is and its position in society today. 
you went on to answer my next question I had for you is whether, I guess, the Commonwealth is needed or if it's relevant. And you mentioned, I guess, it can't really, really be relevant unless we, would you say, peel away the empirical legacy? What I'm trying to say is that the principles of it, the principles that underscore the Commonwealth, forgetting whether it was another way for the empire to remain, have its hold on all the nations without calling itself the colonial master. Um, But the principles of democracy, of development, is what we need today, right? One of the things that really is really... um, irks me is is for example you have thing activities like the uk africa trade events right so a singular country and a whole continent events those kind of things and it still speaks to this mindset of africa is a single country africa is it's, it's just one homogenous thing um and it's a lot more than that and so th- th- those are the those are the instances where you see the legacies emerging right subtly and you know how there was whole within the brexit campaign there was all we're going to now focus on africa you know we're going to benefit you know now build relationships with commonwealth countries well what is the benefit of this commonwealth makeup for those countries we can see how it benefits the uk but for the other countries or the so-called developing countries what what is actually the benefit beyond the instances or and and again these instances of kicking some members out um, for legitimate reasons, for example, of, you know, um, human rights violations and stuff, is not always equal <laughs> also, right? There's instances where they've not done done that. So, again, I think it's one of those things where somebody needs to sit back and say, okay, well, where did we start and where are we now and what does the society need from this now? I wouldn't say we need to end the Commonwealth because any opportunity for nations to come together to do things around development, around democracy, around justice is a positive thing. But what is, you know, what is the benefit of the Commonwealth to Rwanda or to Singapore or to Nigeria or to Kenya? Like what is actually the benefit beyond saying we're part of the Commonwealth? I guess then with the Commonwealth Games coming to Birmingham and as you've said, the city is a very multicultural population, reflecting the countries that inhabit the city as well. Is it a good time then to reflect on the UK's relationship with the Commonwealth nations, especially, I guess, in a time where we've had the lockdown, we've seen things that have come out of that, whether that be um, the BLM movement or vaccine hesitancy. Is it now an appropriate time to see if there's a healthy relationship between Commonwealth communities and the UK? Your question is interesting because I think it's not about the UK's relationship with the Commonwealth is that taking out the idea that there's a UK relationship with the Commonwealth in the sense that we are the Commonwealth. So there is no position, hierarchical position of the UK. It is a collective with equal partnership, with equal objectives and and there is, there is, and those are the kind of um, things I'm saying about the the history, the imperial history, and the the kind of positioning the UK as you know the ideal, and everybody's kind of underneath it. So even the construction of the question, I'm not criticizing you personally, but those are the kind of questions that are coming up. Is you know UK revaluating its relationship, and often from the perspective of because the UK need <laughs> need the rest of the world, and because they've left Europe, you know that kind of thing. That needs to stop. It needs to be about the Commonwealth on an equal footing. It's not the UK and the Commonwealth. It is the Commonwealth, 
right? So if we, if if we're serious about kind of letting go of that imperial past, and that's the kind of where we should be constructing those kind of questions. Right now, there is still inequality. Um, and it speaks to the position the UK still sees itself in a world where it's not longer as relevant as maybe it used to be. Do you feel like those divisions, in a sense, or those uneven footings manifest themselves here in the modern West Midlands, in Birmingham in particular, being the city that's going to be hosting the Commonwealth Games? Yeah, I mean, I spoke earlier on about Peribar and about how concentrates, how there's a lot of cultures, but within that is all the, you know, inequalities of access, economic inequalities, you know, the environment there is not like, you know, going to Edgebast and all the other (laughs) places that probably are less multicultural in Birmingham, right? So you see that in the environments that people live in. You go down a place like Dudley Road, where there's lots of cultures and you see the, you know, the poverty that is there, right? You see the underdevelopment that is there. You see, you do see that. And then you go to a less multicultural environment and you see things that, you know, a lot look a lot more affluent. So those equalities are very visible in in the geography of and the make of the physical environments of Birmingham and the areas that are multicultural versus the area that are less multicultural. A lot of the work that you do looks at African feminism and women's and girls' rights. How has then the Western lens narrowed our understanding of women's rights issues in Africa? Because I know you talk about that in some literature. Yeah, I wrote a publication on that where I looked at Western media's representation of African African women's rights issues. And it was interesting to identify the kind of things that they considered rights issues for African women. And I was also interested in the way in which they wrote about this and reported about this thing. So, for example, in my analysis, I found that at least 50% of reporting on what is termed by Western media as women's rights issues in Africa was around FGM, right? So, and that's not, I mean, FGM is a terrible thing and, you know, and and I'm all for kind of changing the traditions and stuff. Um, But also when you look at the way in which these narratives were constructed, it was often as a, uh, the the main narrative was always, and look how badly the, the African state is doing about it, right? That's always, no matter what the topic was, it was always that narrative of, and see how terrible the, the governance is in this country. And so it's really interesting to see what Western media consider to be a women's rights issue in Africa, and also what their narrative says about the agenda, you know? Yeah, I, I remember recently we had the COP26 event, and there was a lot of footage of Madagascar, and everybody was like, what has Madagascar done now? <laughs> you know, there's always that kind of suspicion that, okay, now the spotlight and it was, it was, I mean, not to say that those issues are not real in Madagascar, but, you know, you always have this thing of, of okay, if you're not hearing about your country in the Western news, and that means everything, <laughs> that means everything is okay in, in the sense that it's, it's only when things, you know, it's only negative narratives that really make the news when it comes to reporting on African countries. It it builds a picture of agenda setting, it builds a picture of kind of um, Western perspectives on 
telling me what the issues I should feel are the most important issues to me is. I think when you go into the continent and you go to diverse countries and multiple cultures, then you probably find that the rights issues that the women are talking about are very different from perhaps what the Western media tend to report on. That's not to say they're not reporting on important things, but there's a overwhelming focus on certain things and less on the other. And there's always a consistent narrative of, look how poorly these Africans are doing about addressing this issue. It wasn't until 2018 that Theresa May addressed the leaders of the Commonwealth to right the wrongs of the past and apologise for the discriminatory laws Commonwealth nations had inherited from Britain. Across the world, discriminatory laws made many years ago continue to affect the lives of many people, criminalising same-sex relations and failing to protect women and girls. I am all too aware that these laws were often put in place by my own country. They were wrong then, and they are wrong now. As the United Kingdom's Prime Minister, I deeply regret both the fact that such laws were introduced and the legacy of discrimination, violence, and even death that persists today. As a family of nations, we must respect one another's cultures and traditions, but we must do so in a manner consistent with our common value of equality. Yemisi discusses her thoughts on discrimination in Nigeria. She also tells us what life is like for Nigerian women living in Birmingham and shares her own experiences of living in the city. In 2018, Theresa May, she deeply regretted the legacy of laws that banned same-sex marriage and failed to protect women and girls due to, I guess, the legacy of the British Empire. What legacy has the empire left on the protection of women's and girls' rights and the LGBTQ plus communities in, in Africa? I'll start from in terms of how we organised our society, right? You know, so when you look at, for example, the Igbo culture in Nigeria, women had a significant place in kind of decision-making about their society, their community. Uh, Market women had a huge role, you know, in different cultures, in different parts of Nigeria in terms of governance and making decisions and, you know, how we we, um, implement justice. And a lot of that, and with the adoption of Western democracy or Western structure of, of governance, a lot of that gets pushed out. And so even how many years after, you know, um, independence, we're still grappling with this structure of governance that was brought in from elsewhere and that didn't necessarily speak to the things that already existed, the structures that already existed. And within that was the role the critical role that women played in the governance structure of the various kingdoms that made up, you know, present-day Nigeria, for example, right? Yeah, and when it comes to LGBTQ and restrictive laws that we have today, many of them came from, have colonial heritage, you know. There was no, those kind of discriminations in our communities before that. So, and even religion, even the religious makeup of, you know, the countries. Uh, meant that our um, traditional beliefs were kind of, you know, again, not fully disappeared, but kind of pushed in margins um, because of the influence. And when we talk about things like feminism, for example, 
and you know academic discourse on that you know goes from um so when we talk about you know first wave second waves of feminism and how black feminists were saying you know our experiences are different from white feminists or for the white from the white women's experience um and within africa there is there is a sense in which there's a lot of women's rights activities. There's always been a lot of women's rights activities. When we look at history, you see, you know, the Queen Aminas, the <laughs> the um, Falakuti's mom, for example, all of these amazing women who were part of agitation for equality, for um, women's rights, for just development um, and, and, and justice in the society. But then there was this notion that women's rights movements and feminism came from the West, right? As opposed to the fact that it already existed. I think there's there was there's always a contention with the naming feminism. And so I think this association with it, with with this notion of it coming from the West, often makes means that when you speak with some Nigerian women in the women's rights or women's equalities um space, they don't like to use the word, right? A lot of African women don't like to use the word feminism to label what they do because of those various associations um, with Western origin. And it stems from understanding that our experiences um, and the way in which we fight for our rights differs from how you do it here. And if there's a prescriptive idea of this is how women's rights should be or this is how women should fight for themselves, and it conflicts with some deeply rooted cultural beliefs, then people are going to not want to be labelled as such. Let's take Nigeria, for instance. And I believe it's still illegal to be in a same-sex relationship. Would you say Commonwealth member states need to then be penalised and not be allowed to engage in things like the Commonwealth Games or have a seat at the table? Is it always about punitive action or is it about understanding the foundations of what exists, right? And how do you dismantle that? And supporting nations, supporting each other to dismantle those structures that create such environments of inequalities. Because at the end of the day, such punitive actions only affect the average person, <laughs> right? The person on the streets who's still struggling to put bread on the table for their children. Again, these are the kind of issues that if the Commonwealth as a body wants to show its significance today, its relevance today, should be more vocal about and collectively looking at how to form alliances around improving human rights in, in certain areas. But there are deeply rooted historic things that you just cannot push aside from with punitive action. It is, it's just like the FGM campaign, right? It is absolutely wrong that it happens. And in Nigeria, the, the law is against it. It is illegal, but it still happens. So you have the legal structure that, that condemns it, but it still happens. And why does it happen? Because And why, is, why does it happen? Because there was a disconnect between how the policies are, con are constructed and an understanding of why this thing happens in the first place, right? In, in the Maasai tribe, but there's a rite of passage associated with some of these things, right? And so it's about how do we disconnect the physical act of cutting a girl from this cultural idea that there's something that needs to happen as a rite of passage. The FGM thing is a valid example. There are laws against it. It is illegal, but it still happens. And it still happens because the cultural belief still exists. The structures to police it 
are not yet there. You know, so it's one thing to say, okay, we'll kick everybody out because their their laws are are restrictive in this way or that way. But actually, what is the root cause of this and how can we actually dismantle it from the bottom up rather than kind of, you know, penalise people who are not um, homophobic (laughs) but happen to live in a a country where the laws are, are, you know, how homophobic. Are you familiar with the concept of Sankofa? No current concept of to understand how to move forward is we need to look back so would you say that needs to happen in terms of bettering laws around women and girls and also LGBT rights because you mentioned that before things like colonialism happened there was much fluidity in sexuality and gender absolutely understanding the historical context understanding the deeply rooted cultural context I think it's more about having the will Having the leaders and member states who have the will for change, how does the Commonwealth ignite that will for change? I want to ask then, how does life differ? It might be self-explanatory, but how does life differ for women in Nigeria compared to women that have migrated and are living in their womanhood in Birmingham? I think the first thing to understand is that in Nigeria alone, we have, what, 365 ethnic groups, right? Regionally, geographically, there's differences in our experiences, right? So a Nigerian woman living in Meduguri, Bono State, which is a largely Muslim state, which is on, you know, has a peace and security issue, is going to be completely different from somebody in Lagos, you know, et cetera. Coming from Nigeria, living in the UK, getting married to my husband, who's Nigerian but born in the UK, and having kids brought up here, and having the cultural knowledge of what is considered the role of a wife for a mother in Nigeria, and doing the entire opposite here, it's quite interesting because it's there, there are very prescribed, prescribed gender roles, right? As a married woman, as a wife, there's a way you're supposed to dress. Like even your identity is kind of merged with the idea, the fact that, so once you have a child, you become mama, this person, right? <laughs> mama Yemisi, right? Mommy Yemisi, that's what people call you. you don't, they don't even always use your name anymore. This idea that, you know, the woman is the, is the caregiver, the primary caregiver, looking after the home, et cetera. Even this, the makeup of the, of the society here doesn't, even if you wanted to continue such traditions, you kind of can't, <laughs> you know, the structure, the work life. Um, in Nigeria, you have children, you have your family around. You know, my, my parents had four kids and, I, you know, I would spend the weekdays with this grandparents and my brother would spend the weekdays with that grandparent. You don't have those kind of structures here. There's, this, there's a sense in which the, the makeup of the environment we're in here kind of changes those prescribed gender roles anyway. But I think for me, not being in an environment where where if I didn't perform in a particular way, I would be looked at and versus being in an environment where, well, nobody cares, right? That is nobody's going to look at the fact that whether your husband is washing the dishes and you're not washing the dishes. Whereas in Nigeria, like, what's going on here? At the same time, I think a lot more... 
and I'm speaking specifically for my country, Nigeria, I can't speak for the whole continent, but a lot of mom Nigerian women and girls, especially my generation and the younger generation, are way more aware of their rights. They're way more less inclined to buy into those culturally prescribed um, roles. The question is the extent to which the society allows them to not prescribe. You know, there's one thing for you to have that confidence and that knowledge and that kind of desire to not conform. There's another thing for the society around you to support you in that journey, right? So if you know that if you're going to divorce an abusive husband, the husband is going to take your kids and your property away, you're not going to have any rights, then you're less likely to go and divorce your husband even if you wanted to, even though you know that you can and you probably should leave an abusive marriage. And so the society doesn't even support you to do that. But I think things are getting better. There's a lot of... um, women's rights networks and organizations that work directly with law enforcement, for example, in the cases of abuse and those kind of stuff to support women. And I think it speaks to the global world, right? The 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 engagement with other cultures through media text, through social media, et cetera, et cetera. Is there then a sense of community in Birmingham for Nigerian women? Yes, I think... I, you know, for me personally, I've got a good network of Nigerian f- women friends. We kind of support each other and stay connected. For example, one of the topics amongst me and my group of friends is, you know, our eldest child is about to go to secondary school and, you know, those kind of things. And kind of always sharing information about, oh, this, take them to this, this, um, this class or take them to this thing to experience this and, you know, um, kind of trying to build that support network. The position of things like your hairdresser is also very important, like having the right hairdresser and having the right, um, and your relationship with your hairdresser is always so special. And I'm still able to find that here. I'm sure people understand Black African women's association with their hair and the relationship they have with their hairdressers. I think the church, you know, has a huge role also in that community building of networks and stuff. And it's it's great that we can build such communities in this environment. Shinaz Pektar was born in Kenya, a former colony of the British Empire. She now lives in Birmingham with her three children and says she wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Shinaz's roots trace back to India and she has seen Birmingham change dramatically over the years since first moving here. Speaking to our reporter Anissa Vasta at Sati House in Aston, Shinaz talks through her first experiences of Western culture, the struggles her family faced when integrating into British society, and lifts the lid on what it was like growing up in Birmingham as a child of the Commonwealth. What was it like growing up in Birmingham? What was that experience like for you? I remember coming to to Heathrow, and that was our first picture of England. Uh, it was snowing. Uh, we thought, wow, you know, what's this? We've never seen this before. It was totally different. The roads were not dirt roads. Uh, There was cars everywhere. It was lovely. Enjoyed it so much, so much. When we first came here, it was difficult. Um, We didn't have a a roof over our heads. We didn't know who to turn to. Uh, We had an older brother who supported us um, and guided us you know, on our journey, um, basically, he found us a room where we can all stay with relatives. We didn't know <laughs> we had 
we had the the English toilets. We didn't understand how to use them because we were kids <laughs> at the time uh, when we first moved here. So it was difficult, but we went on. Um, we went to school. It was it was a culture shock when we went to school because really. We, we used to go to an all-girls school and uh, here we were all mixed. You know, you're, you're there, they're going, let's do PE and you're changing in the same room as boys and you go, oh, my God, you know. So it was a culture shock for us. So we were, whatever we were given, we used to eat. We didn't know, you know, it's not halal. Culturally, we... Uh, being a Muslim, we didn't know anything about halal foods. When we first came to England, it was like everything was okay. We could eat it. it. That included sweets, like jellied sweets. So you can imagine there's, um, you know, uh, pork, beef, gelatin. You know, uh, we weren't told. We used to go, oh, we can eat this. That's Okay. That's all right, we can have this. And it was only when we were growing up, in a way, culture changed. In school, we weren't allowed to cover our legs. We weren't allowed to wear scarves. We were told you can only wear pinafores, you know, socks and uh, shoes. Uh, We weren't allowed to do any of the cultural things that are so free now to do. Food-wise, we can always say, uh, you know, I'm on, uh, my diet requirements are halal, whereas before we couldn't say anything. And how are you doing now then? This is my home now, really. Uh, you know, I've been back to India, I've been on holiday. This is really home now. I think um, my roots are here. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I really love it here. What does Sati House mean to you? They had like an open fun day at uh, Aston Park and um, they had quite a few things on offer and I was really interested in doing bicycle. Uh, It's a women's group and I thought wow that's really good. Um, As a younger child I I had a tricycle which we used to share with my siblings um, and that was it but I wanted to try and then they called us in in October And I said, yes, I'd be really interested. So that was the first time I came. Uh, But I got interested because they they offered so much more. Like they've got a session where they have coffee morning, health and well-being, uh, sessions for English. And they were inviting people to come in and do job search for the first time in a long while. Um, and I mean a long time because uh, I've been a carer. Um, I've had the opportunity to actually look for work. It wasn't derogative or racist or anything like that. They said, yeah, you've got qualifications. You've, you've done this, this and this. Why don't you apply? I would never have ever gone out to the job centre to look for work, to apply for this, to apply for that would never have done it. But because of Sarthi House, um, they've been so good. They've given me confidence to, to want to go to work, to come out of my shell, 
to not just be a carer, to be me. So it does empower. It does empower a lot of women of color, you know, from the South Asian South Asian heritage, you know, yeah. Bangladesh, uh, India, you know, from from different Pakistan, from different areas. How does that? How does that impact? You know, where does your sort of identity come in all of this? My roots are from India, but originally I'm from Africa. In your lifetime, you have experienced racism. That includes, you know, when you're working as well. Um, in school, when you when you first go into school, you do experience it a lot. And I know back in the um, early 70s, um, there was a lot going on. Um, so for us as Asian culture, um, I think we need to have uh, a thick skin. You know, we were always told, oh, look the other way, um, move on, you know, and that's exactly what we were taught to do. It's good to have your identity sometimes. When you come here, it's like you are experiencing, you're not the only one experiencing, you know, a culture outside. You're all in in this team and it's good to know that, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not the only one here of Asian Orient. As Shanaz's story shows, no migrant's journey is straightforward. But Tamika Beckford's was harder than most. Tamika migrated to Birmingham from Jamaica in 1999. When her parents could no longer afford to fund her studies, her visa ran out and she suddenly became an illegal immigrant living in the UK. Faced with an uncertain future, Tamika relied on the support of those around her to build a life here in Birmingham. Now a healthcare worker, Tamika spoke to us about the mental toll of obtaining citizenship here in the UK, the incredible support she received from members of the community, and her hopes for affordable sporting facilities for struggling families on the back of the Commonwealth Games. Could you first just tell me a bit about yourself? When did you come to Birmingham? Well, I migrated from Jamaica to England in 1999. I came to England as a visitor to be with my parents. But then afterwards, um, I went to college to study. I did um, hospitality and catering, level two and three. And then after that, I did hairdressing just to get like, some visa extension because I came as a visitor to get my extension. So I enrolled in college and did a few courses where I got my extension to stay in the UK. From then, when my studies were over, my parents couldn't afford any more money for me to do any other courses. So at that point, financially, my parents was unstable. So then they couldn't do anything else for me. So I became an illegal immigrant in Britain. So over the course of the time, I stayed illegal. I was doing like cashing and work, like washing up, like working, cleaning floors, mopping up, washing up, just little things that I could get my hands on to sort of help myself and help, you know, help around the house. My parents didn't ask for anything anyways, but I just thought that like, I'm at that age now. 18, 19, I need to help out. So that's what I did for quite a while. 
I stayed like that for like a very, very long time. I was staying with friends, like from here to there. It was just like really hard, really hard, trying to work and just trying to keep my head above water. Being scared at the same time, not knowing like if I got caught like working or if I got caught on the street, like what's going to happen. I found a partner and then we moved in together. But he was in the same situation as myself. Like he didn't have leave to remain. But the love we had for each other, we stayed together and like tried to work and do things together. And which we had our first child in 2004, Shanice. She's almost 18 now. From then, um, I found out about um, Brushstrokes and the Children's Society, which help families like myself, which are illegal and has children or a child that needs support. So in that sense, we lent towards that sort of help. So we started getting help from the Children's Society and Brushstroke, and they helped us and put us onto children's services so we could get, like, food financially and, like, a temporary accommodation. So it just started from there, and then they helped us because we had Shanice. So they helped us, like, to get food and go to food banks and just help us along the way. Um, Until she was 10, we got her naturalised, so... That's how we got her naturalised. And then that helped us as parents to send off to home office to get our, um, like a two and a half year visa so we could actually work and look after, look after her ourselves without the help of like the children's society or the charities and things like that. How did it feel to get that visa after all that time? Uh, it was like a, a weight lifted off our shoulders it was really hard because we were even going to Solihull to sign on. We had to go to Solihull like every week to sign on because we didn't we didn't have that right to be in this country. So we had to go and sign on. But the day Shanice turned 10, we sent off. We didn't even know about that. We were told by um, the Children's Society. We didn't know about any of it. We were like blank. It was like a blank canvas. And it was so real when we we had the opportunity to like work legally and to like just be here legally and just to do things like normal like normal people. And what were the major uh, sort of barriers or problems you faced in trying to build a life here in Birmingham? Well, not knowing, not knowing information, because as what they would say, like in Jamaica, they would say you're a fool to what you don't know, and we were fools to what we didn't know until. Um, we knew about brushstrokes and the children's society. We started getting gaining information. They started giving us information. Did you know that you could do that? Did you know that this help is available? Did you know that? And we didn't know anything. We didn't like. We did, just didn't know. So knowing and learning and gaining information and understanding and like not being afraid to use the resources that you've got or that you've been given is that's the main thing learning and knowing and understanding. Being Jamaican, uh, Jamaican obviously part of the Commonwealth, did the Commonwealth maybe growing up or now have any particular relevance to you? In a sense, yes. 
in a sense, yes, um, because we were ruled under the British system, um, which we gain our own independence. But I still think so, because being a part of it, it's just like a ray of sunshine and like children can learn as well. They can learn about the athletes and and like what they do to be better at what they do this in the sports and what sports. It could go a long way. They could even become one of their favourite sports person. So I think it's very important. And what sort of, with the Commonwealth Games coming to Birmingham, what impact would you like to see that have on the city and its communities? Well, more healthier options, like people like like exercising more and there's more like spaces for people to to be free to do what they would like to do in terms of sport sporting events like like one of my child loves football like more football facilities like in and around the communities like not just based in like maybe in the cities or stuff but like the inner cities part of the the communities for them to access like more community things in the community, like a community centre that has a football pitch where they could access that facility or a basketball pitch or a, a tennis pitch or cricket or something. So more, more facilities for the younger generation to access and to be a part of. Because most of them like sports, would love to do sports, but they haven't got the facilities. And where they are facilities, it's expensive to pay to get into it to actually do the sports or to do what they would like to do in terms of sports. Do you think there are enough facilities at the moment? No. And how important are those facilities to kids growing up in Birmingham? It's important, but like for myself, I'm on a low income. I'm a healthcare worker in a nursing home. And if I've got to prioritise to say whether I feed my kids and pay my bills or to find that extra money to send my child to pay for a weekly or a monthly sporting activity, I wouldn't be able to afford it, to be honest. It's impossible because my bills come first, food comes first, keeping my house warm comes first. So it's not an option. That is not an option. I can't afford it. But if it was there in the community or in the community centre or if it was a bit cheaper or for free for them to access then it would be much better for them. The Commonwealth Games, are you excited by them? I am, very yeah. excited. What are you looking forward to? I'm just looking forward to watching it on TV because I can't afford to get in the stadium to watch it. No, I just want to say thanks to like different charities. Like, as I said, Brushstroke has been a big help to myself and my family. Oscar Birmingham, there's certain people that I just like take my hats off because they go wits end for people like us. And in terms, when I say people like us, people that didn't have the opportunity or doesn't have the, the status or the leave to remain in this country, but wants to make a better life for themselves or for their families. So I just want to say thank you because without the help of the charities, the food organisations and people like that and charities like that, I don't think I would be here where I am today to speak for myself. Tamika's story, like many others who travel to the UK, is one of resilience and determination, highlighting that the path to obtaining citizenship in the UK is still a difficult one, with many hurdles to overcome. Her story also shows the importance of charities, food organisations and support networks here in Birmingham that support migrants and their families 
going above and beyond to help them settle and make a new life here in the city. Commonwealth Stories is a laudable production, brought to you by Birmingham Live. The Commonwealth Stories podcast is available on all your favourite platforms. To keep up to date with the series and hear the latest episodes, make sure to follow and subscribe. To find out more about the upcoming Commonwealth Games and to discover more about the guests who are featured on this episode, make sure to head over to the Birmingham Live website. This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Live. <laughs>